Well, guys. So we have been uh, having different crosswalkers come forward and uh, share some of the reasons why they are crosswalkers. And we invite Carrie Nuccio to come up, who is one of the bubbliest, happiest, cheerful, lovely people you can ever meet. So don't blow it now, Carrie, because I just set you up. <laughs> oh. Well, good morning. Um, so yes, I have been asked to share why I love and support Crosswalk. And even though this makes me really nervous when you <laughs> ask me to do this, <laughs> I really do love this church. And as Dar said, I am very proud to call myself a crosswalker. And, you know, I, I grew up in church, conservative church. And so when Sal and I moved here to Napa in 1986, we found a nice conservative evangelical church where we settled in and I taught Sunday school for about 20 years. And then in about 06, uh, I remember I was attending a ladies Bible study that was just getting way too narrow and boxy for me. And so uh, a friend of mine from my old church who had already jumped ship and was attending here, Meg Losey, <laughs> uh, told me that Pastor Pete uh, did a midweek Bible study here. So I uh, got brave and gave it a try, and it changed my life. I remember in one of those early weeks just sitting there and starting to cry because his alternative thinking about things like grace and salvation was just so open and freeing um, that I, I wanted to hear more. And so on Sunday mornings, I would continue to go over there and teach my Sunday school class at 9 o'clock, and then I would run back over here at 10 o'clock to catch Pete. Um, because I was just so drawn to his teaching and his ability to take a Bible story that I had heard like, you know, a thousand times, but just come at it from a different angle with a fresh perspective that just resonated with me. And, um, but it, it, the more I learned, the more I realized how much there was to unlearn. And that's where those Wednesday morning Bible studies became so invaluable and still are. Um, because it was a safe place to ask those hard questions and to go deeper and dialogue and hear other people's perspectives and their journeys. And that's who Crosswalk is. It's just a very safe and nurturing community where we can journey together and continue to grow and stretch and think and perhaps even heal from some destructive theologies. And so I am just so grateful to get to be part of it. Um, but I'm also very proud of who we are outside of these walls. And as many of you know, uh, my little piece of that pie is I direct our food pantry, along with my wonderful sidekick back there, Linda Smetzer. <laughs> yes. 
And, um, you know, after so many years of uh, every month, we'd set up a little store here, but, or so many years, I should say, COVID and the shutdowns just drastically altered the way that we do things. But, you know, it also gave us an opportunity to kind of sit back and reimagine how we could serve our community. And so I'm happy to say that we've found that niche and we call it Welcome Home. And even though we will always continue to support our own crosswalkers and we will continue to be an emergency food pantry for our community, um, we are now transitioning to working with various county agencies and nonprofits who um, work with folks that have been uh, displaced or homeless and helping them to find housing. And when they do, and these people get to move into their new homes, Crosswalk has offered to come alongside them and stock their kitchen cabinets for them. With, uh, yep, it's a wonderful, wonderful niche that we found. And so we stock it with, you know, staples like flour and sugar and coffee and canned goods and peanut butter, you know, cleaning supplies, things that, you know, when you have to go out and buy those things all at once can get really expensive. Um, and so it's, it's just w really a wonderful opportunity and uh, the agencies and their families have just been so grateful and appreciative. So it's a beautiful partnership that, that we found. And so far, Linda and I uh, have been able to handle it. But uh, as this new ministry continues to grow and take off, I'm sure I'll be reaching out to you for help. So stand by. And uh, if that's something that you think might interest you, let me know. Um, but just as always, Crosswalk, thank you for your continued support, both to me personally, um, but to our food pantry. Um, so when you give to the 360 fund every month, you're supporting our pantry. So thank you. You're a wonderful community. <laughs> give uh, just a moment for my ego to deflate uh, after her very kind comments. <laughs> uh, one other quick little shout out here. Um, thank you, Carrie, so much. And uh, your story is um, not uncommon. And, you know, the reality is uh, I'm not the originator of the, of the stuff. Uh, I'm more the, the conduit of, of the stuff that, uh, that I share and I teach. And sort of my approach here is Whatever I'm learning, I'm just going to keep passing it on to you, and we'll, we'll see where it goes. So it's been a real blessing and a real cool ride uh, to see so many people resonating with all that, like you said. So thank you for your words. And a quick little celebration. So Candace Ramsey, where'd you go? There she is. Uh, she uh, finds me before service and says, today is my anniversary. I'm like, fantastic. Of what? <laughs> she said, it was one year ago today that she started coming to Crosswalk and committed to coming every single Sunday. And she has not missed one. So well done. Well done. 
And Candace has been a delight to have uh, in our different groups and stuff, and look forward to getting to know Candace more. She's, she's just amazing. I do have one uh, little funny correction to make, um, if I can find it here. It's uh, loading up. But in one of the announcement slides that we had today, uh, it was a good question night. It had to do with the problem text, right? <laughs> I knew this was going to happen. As soon as I wrote it, I was like, I don't know if this is really going to make sense to anybody. So I'm not talking about problem texts on your phone. I don't know anything about uh, how to deal with problems. Well, I do. My, my general approach is just to completely ignore them. <laughs> and let people ramble on and on and on. That's fine with me. Just pass along. <laughs> Whatever. So you're welcome to use that. I'm talking about the problematic Christmas texts that we're having. So we're going to get nerdy <laughs> on that Tuesday night and talk about, <laughs> about what we see. And we'll dabble with that a little bit uh, today uh, with, this, uh, with this teaching. So what we got here now uh, is uh, what we're going to look at uh, today. Advent expectations and hope uh, is where we're headed. Uh, to start off, I um, want to back up several hundred years before anything of Jesus' life uh, happened. And this shows up in Isaiah chapter 2. And this is a text Isaiah is sort of written in three parts. It's a very long uh, prophetic book. It's the most quoted uh, prophet uh, in the New Testament, or in the Gospels anyhow. And Isaiah was one of these big deal prophets. Prophet was simply a truth teller, so it wasn't necessarily a future teller. That's usually how we think of it. Uh, this was a guy who would just simply say what was real to his beloved community. And they would hear it and respond to it positively or not. Sometimes the words were very encouraging, like we're going to see today. And sometimes the words were, hey, get your act together, or it's going to all come crashing down on you. And there were many examples of that. And they might put some of those words in God's mouth and quote God as saying the same thing, which is not altogether wrong, because God also, in God's love for us, looks at us sometimes messing up our lives and is also saying, hey, get your act together or else it's all going to come crashing down on you. So the prophet would act as a voice or a mouthpiece of God in that. But this is what he's saying. It's a much more positive vision of what he hopes for the future. This is a vision that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the other hills, and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. There he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion. His word will go out from Jerusalem. The Lord will mediate between nations and settle international disputes. And here, I love this phrase, which you see often quoted. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So I just want you to see at this point what the end goal is in terms of how Isaiah, as a solid Jewish prophet of old, is seeing what God wants to do in the world. And what God is hoping to do in the world, which is to be such a presence of good news and wisdom, that people are going to want to flock to hear this wisdom, 
and the wisdom will be uh, worked out. People will actually take the advice, and instead of more wars, there will be less wars. We won't need defense budgets anymore. We won't need artillery or weaponry anymore. That's the vision. There's one word that is related to this idea of the future. It's a very Jewish word, and you've heard me use it a lot. Do you know what that word might be? Shalom. Wow. Wow. You did it. Way to go. Yeah, shalom. This deep peace. There's no need for more turmoil. Doesn't mean everything's going to be great, but we're choosing not to go toward conflict anymore. Well, the first part of Isaiah starts like this, but when Isaiah wrote this, it was not going to be an easy time because they were under threat from a foreign oppressor. That foreign oppressor, despite all of Isaiah's warnings and pleading to get it straight, to get ready, they ignored it largely. And that foreign oppressor came in and occupied Israel. Uh, first 40 or so chapters, 40 or so chapters, were Isaiah pleading for them to get it. And then finally, toward the end of that first section, that large section, he kind of throws up his hands and says, Well, here we are. Uh, we blew it. Uh, we weren't ready. We didn't listen. And now it's all kind of gone to waste. There's been a lot of bloodshed. Our land is not our own. But people of Israel, do not take that as God not loving us anymore. Do not view it that way because God is with us. In the next two brief sections of Isaiah's great book, he talks about how God is with us in deep ways. Even, even when we suffer, it is a representation of God being with us. He calls us the suffering servant. It's really quite beautiful. Well, so that was kind of the idea, but I wanted you to see at the very beginning, the whole idea was peace, marching toward this shalom. I know I'm getting a little nerdy, texty with you, but bear with me. So then, uh, fast forward several hundred years, Jesus is born, and some amazing things happen. Uh, he lives his life for 30 to 34 years, somewhere in there, and somewhere between 30 and 36, uh, common era, uh, Jesus is killed. And for a brief while, the disciples just continue on in their way, uh, thinking that they're just going to keep living in the way of Jesus and things are going to kind of go toward what Jesus was all about and maybe Isaiah's dream of shalom everywhere was going to happen. But then time went on and on and on and on and on. The Roman Empire was still there. There were some newcomers that came into the fold about 10, 15 years after Jesus' thing, Apostle Paul being one of those. He was completely enraptured by this new teaching and this experience of God. So Paul keeps going on, teaching and planting new churches, all trying to understand what does it mean to be the people of God, the people of Shalom, when we're under the threat of a Roman oppressor. And the Roman oppressor was horrific. While there was some safety from other foreign oppressors, it was hard on them financially, and they were essentially put into a form of slavery at times that they did not want, and their land was not their own. They were constantly under the thumb. Things went from bad to worse, and by the end of uh, the 60s AD, somewhere around, well, actually at 70 AD or, or CE, uh, Jerusalem finally was sacked. There was an uprising. Uh, zealots and other Jewish people 
uh, wanted to have their say. Their dreams of an uprising. They longed for this uprising. And they really believed that if they just prayed hard enough and had the courage to take up their own arms, that God would join them in the fight. And as soon as they got out there in the fight, God would protect them. And so they took Jerusalem and they felt like victory was theirs. And then you've heard me say before, and maybe you've heard the story, but the Roman soldiers just simply surrounded Jerusalem and waited, waited until they ran out of food. And then when they were starving, uh, they allowed the women and children to come out from the city walls. And the men folk were at the top of those walls watching their wives and their children uh, walk to what they hoped would be safety. But before they reached safety, the Roman soldiers took out the women and the children as a statement to the Jewish people never to do this again. Then the Roman soldiers stormed the city of Jerusalem, killed all the Jewish soldiers inside, burned the city to the ground, desecrated its temple, wiped it out. At that point, the people that were Jesus' followers were in a pickle because they'd been living their life thinking that what God is going to do is, you know, we're just going to follow in the way of Jesus and it's going to work out. It's going to be okay. We just got to keep following and trusting and someday God will turn the tide and we'll be in charge again. And then it didn't happen. And then Jerusalem was sacked. It's like God had walked away. And so this is one of the complications with the Bible. First of all, you have 66 Bibles. The Bible is a library, not a single book. And in the New Testament, not only do you have different voices speaking, all of the Gospels are written long after Jesus' life, but you also have the influence of time on the Gospel writers themselves. And you can see it in their hopes and dreams of the future. The Gospel of Matthew that we're going to look at today, it finally came to being after 70 A.D. It doesn't mean that they all of a sudden just started thinking about this. They had stories that they were recording and thinking about and keeping in circulation and community. So we have these, these true representations, I believe, of, of the real historical Jesus and some of the things that he said. A lot of those things were very countercultural. That's one of the clues that it was the real deal because Jesus was set apart from everybody else in so many different ways. But then you see some hopes and dreams of the writers themselves seeping into the gospel account, even putting words in Jesus' mouth to validate their hopes. So it's hard for us to see in our day and age because as many of us uh, grew up, Carrie being one of those, if it's in the Bible, it's what it says it was and it's exactly how it appears. There's no need to think about it a whole lot. Just take the plain reading of the text. But this is a problematic situation because what we see reflected in the text today to kick us into Advent gear doesn't sound a lot like Jesus and sounds a lot more like people who lost hope. So this is toward the end of Jesus' life as Matthew and his community lays it out. And he has Jesus saying this, However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. 
Only the Father knows. When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. That sounds terrifying. Uh, the Noah story, you have, you have a guy building this, you know, if we just play along with the Jewish mythology that's present here, you have Noah and his sons building this massive ship, not just for themselves, but to hold animals and all this. And certainly people around were, were saying, what is, what is happening? What are you doing? We're in the middle of a desert. <laughs> and he's like, well, there's a flood coming. And everybody's like, Noah's crazy, right? So they keep on going and go on with their lives. And they don't listen to what Noah has to say. And so the flood comes as a surprise to them. And we see this today, don't we? We see, this, uh, we see this in Florida. We see this in the Gulf Coast, where for days and days and days, warnings after warning after warning, a hurricane is coming. You've got to get out. And yet people are surprised at just how strong the storm is. And some people die, uh, tragically. Well... The words put in Jesus' mouth at this point are suggesting that that's how it's going to be, like there's going to be some kind of climactic end, and it's all going to blast away, and some people are going to be surprised. Jesus goes on, and there's a whole movie made out of this. Two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two men will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. So you two must keep watch. For you don't know what day our Lord, your Lord, is coming. Understand this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You must also be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. That's why we have a security system in our house. Don't want to miss the coming of the Lord. <laughs> I could get a text alert any moment now. So <laughs> if I have to leave, I have to leave, people. It's, it's God. Well, how many of you remember the film from the 70s, A Thief in the Night? Remember that? There to scare people into the loving arms of the Lord, right? <laughs> and it was a depiction of just this, where two people, there's, there's like a guy driving a car with his family, and all of a sudden, you know, half the people are like beamed up, you know, and they're just gone, and cars are wrecking, and people aren't in their house anymore, and that's sort of the picture that we have here, that when God does God's thing, that's what it's going to look like. That's the hope and the dream of the Matthew writers at this point, because it's been almost 40 years since Jesus walked the earth, and they haven't seen the big turnover they were expecting. And they were discouraged, and so their minds started to change. And then when Jerusalem got sacked, they're thinking to themselves, the only hope we have is that God is going to somehow break in from up there, out there, into here, and do a, I don't know, a Marvel kind of Thor thing, and wipe people out that need to be wiped out, and a bunch of other things. But we're going to be okay because God is on our side. And that is a hope that is still with us in many pockets of Christianity today. The idea that at some point in the future, God, who's out there somewhere, is going to break into history and make everything right. Have any of you heard any kind of story like that before? Of course you have. 
because it's the dominant way of thinking about things like this. Now, backing up about 15 years, but Paul even said such things that can be expanded beyond this, but the Apostle Paul writing to the Roman church says, this is all the more urgent for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. He's thinking the same thing. At some point, it's going to happen. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living. Because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity and immoral living or in quarreling or jealousy. Instead, clothe yourselves with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. Why is Paul saying this? He's saying this because in good prophetic form, he's saying, where's this lever? He's saying you've got to clean up your lives because... The day is coming and it's getting closer and closer when God's going to come and do God's judgmental thing. So get your life right, lest you don't experience the fulfillment of your greatest hopes of being saved and instead being condemned. Well, I'm glad we settled that. The problem problem with these texts, this is one of the problematic sides of this, is it doesn't sound a lot like the birth narratives that begin our story, that begin Advent. And it really doesn't sound a lot like Jesus. Jesus, who seems to be this loving presence everywhere he goes, not judgmental except towards judgy people, right? Those are the only people that Jesus ever really uncorks on are people who are judging others, who are restricting the flow of grace into the lives of others. It's the only time you see Jesus get really ticked off is towards judgmental, usually self-righteous religious people. Other than that, he's breaking all kinds of social laws. He's hanging out with lepers and lepers colonies. He's touching them, which was really inappropriate uh, because they were considered unclean and that was making him unclean and all sorts of violations happening. He was picking grain on the Sabbath, so he's breaking Sabbath laws. He healed people on the Sabbath, with broke the Sabbath law. He's even hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes uh, because he's an every person, everyday people kind of Jesus saying that there's a different way of being in the world. And so then when we hear an apocalyptic uh, sentiment like this, where we just got to wait. It's coming. It's coming. We have to ask the question, where is that dream coming from? And is that really the dream of Jesus? And what I'm going to suggest to you, in my humble opinion, and in the opinion of people that I'm researching with, I don't think it reflects the real Jesus. I think it reflects the terror of the people who are writing his story, their confusion about what, what is happening here. And it taps into something deep within our human nature of we know we're being wronged and somebody's got to pay. And the only way we can imagine anything happening is if God breaks in from outside and does it for us. And we can feel really strangely good about that in weird ways 
it sort of does something for us. If I can just go a little bit darker in our own human nature, I would suggest that we generally are really good at separating sheep from goats. And amazingly, when we separate sheep from goats, that's a biblical reference, we're almost always on the sheep side. Have you noticed that? But somewhere in the world, maybe even around our dinner tables, there's someone who's also separating sheep from goats. <laughs> and we didn't make the cut into the, into the shepherd's flock, right? There are people somewhere halfway around the world that looks at our entire country and says, goats, <laughs> right? So how do we do this? And how do we think about this? And how do we, how do we move away from this very human, vengeful, revenge, kind of, you know, weird, not Jesus-y kind of thing? And how do we... How do we think differently about it? And is there room to think differently about it? And the, the good news is, is there's absolutely room to think differently about this. And it all shows up in the birth narratives that Matthew and Luke gave us. Because you don't have, you don't have what people were really hoping for when Jesus was born. People were hoping. They were hoping for Thor. They, at least the Greek people were. They were hoping for some, or in the Jewish, they were hoping that there would be a new Moses that was so filled with the power of God that it would be like a warrior and go in and kick some butt and we'd all be on top again. That's kind of what they were hoping for. But you don't see that happen anywhere in the birth story. In this beginnings, you see very normal, poor people who are utterly powerless people who are not of high social standing and rank that are going to easily uh, influence others toward great change. No. You've got Mary and Joseph. A couple of peasants. Joseph is a carpenter. He's not like a carpenter you might think of today that can make a good profession out of cabinet making and that kind of a thing. Where he was positioned, Jesus, where he grew up, you didn't make any good money being a carpenter. You were hanging out in the Home Depot parking lot hoping for somebody to give you a day job to go build something. That's the picture of Jesus. Very, or Joseph. Very, very poor was Joseph, and so was Jesus. Mary, not much better. If Joseph was uh, engaged to Mary, <laughs> unfortunately for Mary, that meant that she probably couldn't have done any better. I don't mean that in a cold way. I'm saying in that kind of calculating transactional era in that culture, the family decided, well, this makes sense. A very, very poor girl marrying a very, very poor man. And the people around the story were people of no consequence, no strength. You have a cousin of Mary, uh, Elizabeth, and her husband, Zachariah, who were old and no kids, which was assumed to be in some way caused by God, this barrenness. They were known to be faithful people, and yet not quite blessed un until they were. I guess what I'm getting at, and then, then Jesus is born. And what's happening when Jesus is born? Uh, by the way, 
Spoiler alert, I'm telling you where Jesus was born now and some of the things, details of the story in case you missed the, the Peanuts Christmas special. <laughs> so, so what's the story go to? Uh, they have to go to Bethlehem. They traveled many days to get to Bethlehem and they roll into town and wouldn't you know it, but all the hotels are booked. Uh, they, they forgot to get on Hotels.com and book something in advance. Guys do that. Way to go, Joseph. So they get there. They're banging on doors. Nobody is helping them out. I just want you to picture this. You're in the Middle East where the hospitality ethic reigns supreme, where it is considered in, it's just part of the core of being a human being is when you see somebody in need, you care for them. So can you imagine Joseph and Mary, Mary who's this big now because she's about to give birth and they're knocking on doors and here's this pregnant, moaning woman <laughs> because she's going to give birth, saying, do you have any room inside, any couch, any corner of a floor, anything? And door after door after door gets shut. That doesn't make any sense. And where do they end up giving birth? In a stable. Not a built wood frame manger, but probably a little shallow cave in a hill with a dung-filled floor. There is nothing about the birth narrative of Jesus that says, this is your coming king and gusto, who's here to be Thor-like and wipe out the bad people. It's just the opposite. Instead of these poor, I'm going to use this term very specifically, these poor nobodies, nobodies, <laughs> nobody knew who they were, nobody cared who they were, most of their names are not written in history, these nobodies were given an invitation to experience something so profound that now we look back at them and say, well, they were nobodies. They were somebodies because they heard the message of God and they went for it. What Elizabeth and Zechariah, what Mary and Joseph, what the shepherds in their fields that night, what the, the wise men coming from afar all learned in that whole experience in the drama that make up what we call the birth narrative text. They learned that God wasn't going to be breaking in from up there somewhere. But they found out that they themselves were the heroes they had been waiting for. They were the ones who were invited into the story of God. God could not break in from out there because God was already with them. The Spirit of God was not going to break in from heaven above because the Spirit of God was already flowing in their midst. And in this exchange of things which are very mysterious and curious and we're still talking about them 2,000 years later because it's such a juicy story we find regular, ordinary nobodies who are experiencing the whisper of God in their ear to do something profound, to take a risk, to say yes, to go against their, uh, their intuition, which their culture is saying, don't say yes to this. It's going to be humiliating. But instead, they hear the whisper and they go forward. And because they go forward, 
the person of Jesus is brought into the world. A different way of being. And because Jesus was raised by people, nobodies, who said yes to the invitation to be the heroes that God was inviting them to be in their normal, everyday, ordinary lives. Don't you think Jesus came by this naturally? So as he began to learn and wonder, what does it mean to be me? Who is God calling me to be in this life? He already had many examples of what it meant to say yes, to bring more of the shalom of God into the world. Now, you can go home today and you can Google search apocalypse and you can Google search uh, end times and all kinds of things and you'll find out that the prevailing voices in our world are still that later Matthew stuff. There's still a massive voice in the world that's just waiting for the heavens to open and Jesus to come surf riding on the clouds and, and do something spectacular, you know, like we'd see in a Hollywood show. But there's a growing number of scholars who are looking more and more at that and recognizing it for what it might actually be, which is a deep cry for hope and peace, the only way they can possibly imagine it, which is power coming in and with power squashing other power. But the way of Jesus wasn't that. The way of Jesus was subversive. The way of Jesus was working from the other side, knowing that if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. That you might have momentary peace if you have enough power to squash the other powers of the world, but it's only a matter of time before they come back and do it all over again. That was not the story of Jesus, in my opinion. And it means as we go forward in this Advent, and maybe we need to think differently about the whole thing, and instead of Instead of sitting in wonder and awe about the heavens opening up, maybe, maybe what we need to do is to spend a little bit more time in quiet, to be silent, to wonder how is God speaking to us rather than just waiting for the day when God comes and rescues the whole world. Maybe we're the ones that the Spirit of God is whispering into the ears, saying, I just need you to do your part. I just need you to do that one little thing. I know you think you're a nobody, but you're not alone in this world. And my Spirit of God is working through you in ways that you cannot possibly imagine. You do not see the web that my eyes see, God, I think, would say. You don't know that this one small act of kindness or thoughtfulness or planning or service or whatever is going to impact more than you can possibly recognize because you're that connected. When you choose to say yes to just being kind to that person on the other side of the counter or give yourself in service to whatever that project is or commit to just showing up 52 weeks in a row to church or just saying to yourself, man, I just, I just know God is working with us and I know how the food pantry worked in the past, but I just think that God is asking us to think differently about it. And spending the time and energy to think that through is a massive statement of yes. And that yes, in that case, translates to people who are extremely vulnerable and wondering, does anybody care as I'm moving into my new digs? And now they find out that it's the people of God expressed through Crosswalk that are saying, we care. You never know what your yes can mean. But we are encouraged by the story that we have in these birth narratives.
that is probably more than we can imagine. So I came across this in my readings this week. This is a prayer. Unexpected God, your advent alarms us. Wake us from drowsy worship, from the sleep that neglects love and the sedative of misdirected frenzy. Awaken us now to your coming and bend our angers into your peace. In theology, uh, in the major categories of God's coming, you have origin stories like creation, God speaking everything into being. You see this repeated with the, in the Gospel of John. Uh, the Word becomes flesh. So John and his Gospel, which was written even much later than Matthew, is saying we're recognizing that God was doing something in Jesus. And then eventually, you know, we have this grand idea, the apocalyptic thing that whenever the world ends and the human experiment is all over and God's done with all that, and that I, I hold in tension because it, some of that just does not make any sense with experience and theologically. But in that in-between time, theologians say, are times of multiple inbreakings of Christ, multiple opportunities for God to, to be expressed in the world. And that is what we're seeing here in this prayer. Will we be open to what God is inviting us into? So I invite you to say this out loud with me now, and then we'll take a moment just to be still and quiet, and then we'll wrap up our time together with the prayer that Jesus taught us. But for now, would you say this out loud with me? Unexpected God, your advent alarms us. Wake us from drowsy worship, from the sleep that neglects love and the sedative of misdirected frenzy. Awaken us now to your coming and bend our angers into your peace. Amen. Would you pray with me? I invite you just to be still. Know that we are not alone in this room. That no matter what state you are in, the very animating presence of God has been here all along. Like air that is moving from corner to corner in the room. We never know exactly where it's going to show up, but we know it's here. And this presence of God who sees absolutely everything at all times, knows everything that can possibly be known knows how you're connected to everybody else and everything else and how they're connected to you. This God who longs for shalom as evidenced in the person of Jesus. This God is constantly inviting us forward. Maybe for you today, the invitation is deeply intimate and personal. And it has more to do with how you feel about yourself than anything else. Maybe for some of you, you're, you're carrying a lot of baggage. And maybe the whisper of the Spirit to you today is to let it go. To forgive yourself. To know that you're really, truly loved 
and of great value. And that value can never be taken away. So for you today, the yes means to stop pretending, to stop acting a role that you were never supposed to play. And to start really learning to be you. Maybe for some of you, you're just feeling a gentle nudge, a whisper in your ear about a person, another person in your life. They're popping into your consciousness. It could be somebody you know or somebody that you're just going to bump into with your, as your day rolls out. And there's just something in you that maybe it's whispering, just say, be extra kind. Be the joy that you want to see in the world. Be loving and graceful. Maybe for some of you it's a bigger ask that requires more thought and time, an invitation into a, a new role perhaps or a new act of service. What is the Spirit saying to you today? So God, we confess to you that we are just a bunch of nobodies here. We say it tongue-in-cheek because here we are speaking to you and the fact that you listen to us and love us means that we're, we're not nobodies, <laughs> but that we're loved. So, God, help us to know what you're asking, that we might say yes, even if we think it's silly or small. Help us realize that that is the answer. Help us all in our own way say the yes that culminates in much bigger yeses and much bigger change, even enough to bring a Jesus into the world to show us a new way. To that end, God, we pray the prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. All right, nobodies who are deeply loved by the very creator of everything, you have such an opportunity to go into the world and bring Christ again and again and again wherever you go. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.